to another episode of the New Books Network podcast. My name is Lee Pierce. I am your hostess with the mostess in the channels in language and media and communications. And today I am very excited to welcome a colleague of mine, uh, Michelle Ramsey, who with Lori Groman wrote the book, Major Decisions, College, Career, and the Case for the Humanities. Lori could not be with us, but Michelle is here. And this book uh, published 2020 from the University of Pennsylvania Press. I'm really excited to present this book. It's un, um, it's different than the sort of critical theory monologues, I'm sorry, monographs that I typically like to interview because that's my wheelhouse. But this is even in some ways more crucial to what I do because one of the things I spend a lot of time doing is convincing students and parents that the study of rhetoric is a worthwhile investment. And most of the time I get a very familiar pushback, which is, well, if they're not in STEM, then they're not going to make any money and they're going to have miserable lives and they're going to die in the gutter never having lived a life worth living. And I have to explain to them that actually my students have an almost 100% employment rate. And more importantly, they are happy. And they have they may have traded, even if they trade $20,000 in income for a worthwhile, engaging, critical, creative, productive, uh, civilly responsible you know, endeavor in their lives and careers, isn't that a $20,000 that's worth the investment. But more often than not, I actually find the salary parity is pretty much on point. So it's not even something to worry about. And this book is really a case for the humanities. It's a case for the humanities as something that the federal government ought to be funding. It's a case for the humanities as something students ought to be majoring. It's, and it's also a case for you know the humanities working within and across other kinds of disciplines. It's certainly not a case for humanities exclusive academic and public education. It's a case for reminding everyone that the humanities is still part and parcel to what we do and that it has just as much value. And this kind of cliche that you can't get a job with an English degree is not only harmful, but it's also just factually inaccurate in most cases. So I'm really excited. It's a, it's a unique book for us to be interviewing on the New Books Network, but it makes it all the more important. And I just cannot wait to hear all about this book from Michelle. So I'm going to kick it over to Michelle. Um, you still there? Yep. Awesome. Well, thank you for this wonderful book. I mean, the the breadth of research on this is really compelling in addition to the quality of the ideas. And I would just love to hear more about you and the book. And maybe you could introduce Lori briefly since Lori couldn't be with us. And then we will take it from there. Right. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Yeah. So uh, I am an associate professor of communication arts and sciences and women's studies at Penn State Berks, which is a college within the Penn State system uh, that also offers, uh, I think the last count was 20 different undergraduate degrees. Uh, and I founded one of those degrees, which was communication arts and sciences. Uh, my co-author, uh, do, do, Lori, they call, do they call it the Ramsey degree? They should. They should. You should work on that. Obviously. Um, and then, uh, Lori, uh, Grobman is a professor of, uh, English and women's studies and uh, she's also at Penn State Berks, and she founded, before I even uh, got there, she founded uh, what was their professional writing degree and now is uh, uh, digital writing and human- uh, digital writing and, and media, I think. It's just changed its name. I can't remember. But anyway, um, we both uh, are at the same college. We both, and, and really, uh, you, your introduction really speaks to why we decided to write this book, right? Not only do we, uh, are we people that uh, started majors in the humanities at our college, we also um, uh, have always had to answer these questions as academic advisors because at our college faculty do academic advising uh, 
uh, for, you know, uh, all the different majors uh, Penn State offers. So these are questions that we've always had to address with, with parents and with students, uh, and, and, and sometimes even with our own faculty and administrators. Um, we're at a college which has uh, started a number of uh, engineering degrees in recent years, and uh, we're very fortunate that uh, a lot of the folks we work with in STEM are, are fantastic, understand the importance of the humanities, uh, understand our importance, work with us, work with people in the arts. They're, they've really been fantastic in that way. Um, but um, there is still this overarching narrative that has taken over the academy and I would even say the country. Um, and that is that everybody needs to major in STEM. Um, either because we are going to have or already are in a STEM crisis uh, slash shortage, or um, because if you want to have a good job uh, that pays well and can help you pay your student loans, it needs to be a STEM degree because those are the only degrees that are going to have jobs. Uh, and so like everyone else in the humanities, we're, we're grappling with, with those issues with our students and, and their parents and other stakeholders in the university. So after sort of a decade of conversations, uh, we just decided to go ahead and, and write this book uh, and focus on um, not, as you say in the introduction, not that the humanities are the only way to go, but that the humanities are an important way to go and that um, the STEM crisis that sort of undergirds all of this pro-STEM rhetoric in the academy and outside isn't really um, based in much fact. Uh, and uh, J Michael Tietelbaum at Harvard, who's sort of the guru of this, uh, this discussion, uh, will tell you there aren't any uh, academic studies that support a STEM crisis. It's all pop popular press sort of discussions. Uh, and so um, that's sort of, you know, that that's where we come from. Um, and needing the public to understand that STEM is absolutely important uh, in a high-tech global economy of today and the future, but that um, all of those uh, industries also need the humanities and the arts and the social sciences. We focus on the humanities, um, but it isn't a call for everyone to be humanities majors. It's really a call for students to major in what they care about, what they're passionate about, and what they enjoy. Um, like you said in your introduction, you know, the, the, the salary, uh, argument, uh, can, can go a certain distance, but, uh, if you're like me, you, you graduated college with a lot of business majors who are really unhappy that they, um, went for sort of that, you know, degree that everybody, everybody seems to get, uh, and didn't well, do what I, they love. And if I could... Yeah. Oh, sorry. And if I could jump in real quick. So, sure. so for the audience, just because I, I never know what people know, um, STEM stands for science, technology, right. engineering, and math. Right. Is right. that right? Okay. So um, we, I use the acronym so much, I've forgotten what's in it. I know, but I right. also think that I want to put in with STEM business school and law school. Yes. Um, or, or, or rather business, right? Uh, whether it's mm -hmm. a, whether it's degree or whether it's like going into business and mm -hmm. law, because really, in addition to STEM, um, those two fields are also two of the fields that people often think somehow automatically equal great job plus money plus quality of life. Right. That has not only been never borne out in my personal experience, which is mm -hmm. you know as as is you is now thousands of students, so this is mm -hmm. not a small sample size, but also you know increasingly, in fact, they did an article at the end of last year in Forbes. Um, 
in, in, they have this section on like must reads for CEOs. It's one of those like cutting, cutting things CEOs have to know right now that get delivered to your inbox. And it was precisely on how dissatisfied companies are with, um, with lawyers coming out of law school and right. business students coming out of business school because they know like how to use an Excel spreadsheet, but mm-hmm. if, if, but, but they can't think why they're using it that way right. or yeah. language, like with law, law is so much about contract language and, right. and thinking like a rhetorician, right? Warrants and toolman models and argumentation and critical thinking and being able to think about the multiple ways a single word means multiple things and looking mm-hmm. at precedent and looking at case studies and, and law students aren't taught that stuff. Right. They're also not taught how to argue. <laughs> I know, right? And I know. You, I, and I, like to tell, I always like to tell my students this. I'm like, you think it's going to be all, you can't handle the truth. But in right. fact, it's more, it's more like you can't handle the paperwork. Right. Yeah, no, yeah. it really, I, I was, uh, when I was in graduate school at University of Georgia, one of my roommates was a law student and she was like, so tell me about this argumentation thing you do. I know. Um, yeah. Because, uh, I at, yeah. I was at UGA too. No way. And, um, yes. And, tw- and I graduated in 2015 with my PhD and, you know, the debate program there. It was just hilarious how little the law school and the debate program had to do with each other at all. And it's sort of like, man, there's a missed opportunity, which I think we can talk more later too about um, maybe one of the things that the book doesn't get at that we may want to chat about is what the humanities can do to make itself valuable again, rather Mm -hmm. than just say like, oh, snoot, snoot, we're the humanities and nobody, because this victim mentality isn't helping anybody's case. But I think your book is really focused more on the like this basically just a myth in the sense of just not being true yet continuously being peddled to people that right. you can't do anything with a degree when in fact, I mean, right. even people in like CEOs of companies are, are like, yeah, get a humanities degree. I mean, yep. vet schools require you to have public speaking. I mean, all mm-hmm. kinds of things are happening where people are clearly valuing the humanities and yet we keep talking about how you can't get a degree in the field. So. Um, right. I'll get yeah. back to you to finish saying what you were going to say after my little aside. <laughs> yeah, no, I would just continue on that aside. I mean, I think you're right in terms of business and and law. Uh, I think also uh, health sciences has become part of that, um, you know, and certainly um, and, and this is, of course, uh, you know, in this particular world context, uh, you know, it is important that we have a good health staff. Um, but uh, those degrees are just everybody is being pushed in those directions. And, um, and as you say, I mean, the, the data, and, and, and we have it in the book too, right? The data doesn't really bear out this huge discrepancy um, unless you're very particular about what pieces of data you use. So um, uh, an English professor uh, that I've, I've interacted with on Twitter, uh, Aaron Hamil- uh, um, Hanlon, uh, pointed out, uh, made a really good point that I wish we had also made in the book more pointedly that, you know, these discussions often get, uh, are start are started with talking about the very highest um, uh, job salaries in, in something like engineering, right? So petroleum engineering, and they'll throw that salary up against the lowest salary in the arts or the humanities and say, see the difference, um, but that is, that's such cherry picking. And, um, and it is, and, and when you look at the data, those huge disparities aren't that different right now, the salary data is saying, if you have an engineering degree, you're probably going to earn about $10,000 a year more. And, and that's, and that's nothing to sneeze at. I mean, that, that's a fair, you know, over the years that compounds that adds up, but it forget you, it, 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 it leaves out that with additional education and experience, humanities students get closer 
Um, they'll never catch up completely to that in most cases, but they'll get closer. Um, and, and that 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 so that salary data, even and the way we talk about these salaries, is 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 just really skewed and and not borne out by the data. So yeah, and I so when I talk to parents about this. Um, which actually it's an interesting time for this book to be coming into my wheelhouse because we're about to start this slew of online meetings with parents and, and, right. and I, I shouldn't say parents, sorry, uh, families, whatever, however you define that word and mm-hmm. the student that's coming mm-hmm. into the, right. And so this is a great time to have that conversation because I, I'm in a communication field, which is technically social science. So social science mm-hmm. is sort of one of those things where people are like kind of okay with it, mm-hmm. but I'm a humanist and I'm the only humanist in the department. And so I sell it as a, as a humanist, not as a social science, because I don't want to buy into the like, oh, you'll get a great job and everyone will give you lots of money. Cause that's not, cause that's not mm-hmm. going to sustain you through four years of school. Right. And also it may or may not be true. Like what if you're bad at what you do? Like these median right. salaries are for people that are good at their jobs. If you come out of this degree and you're right. the crappiest engineer that ever did, cause you can't stand it. Like right. that, you're not looking, that money is not a guarantee in advance. So you really have to be careful about that. But I always say two things. One, your job in college is to get more interesting. So I don't care how you do that, but if they come home from spring break or they call you on the phone and you ask them what's going on with their major and they aren't, they aren't telling you how awesome the stuff they're working on is, right. that's a huge red flag. And I will say more often than not, people who are, who are forcing themselves to go into these quote unquote, like practical money-making careers they're the first people to be like, exams, 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 mm-hmm. exams. Second, mm-hmm. if you already know you love something, this is not, we're not talking to you. Like if you know you love <laughs> business and this is right. just what you were meant to do and you can't, like you, all you want to be in life is yep. an actuary, cool. Be a business then, major. Then great. But also yeah. think about always adding the word critical to stuff. So like in addition to being an, an accountant, be also be like a critical, like it's, it's, accounting is your major, but critical accounting should also be your major. And mm-hmm. business is your major, but critical business should also be your major. And education is your major, but critical education should also be your major. And so if mm-hmm. the critical piece is just disappearing, that's where the humanities has left. Not necessarily that you didn't also get a double major in English. Right, right. Yeah. And the communication piece too, just in general. Yes. Like, yes. So, mm-hmm. you know, speaking to accounting, um, we, we, we certainly in our research came across more than one person saying a similar thing, but the, the quote that we use in the book is an, a, a person that's in financial services. And, and she says, um, I can teach anybody to do financial services. I can't teach them how to write. And I have a friend who's a partner at an accounting firm uh, who says, you know, I'm getting really close to just hiring humanities students because I can teach anybody to do taxes on the computer. We have systems that do that. Um, I cannot teach them how to have effective relationships with our clients. Yep. Uh, and so I, I, you know, Mark Cuban, even, you know, super billionaire business guy um, is constantly talking about how liberal arts and humanities are, you know, you, you have all this data, but um, the data is just that. It, and, and you need this, this piece, this humanities piece, this liberal arts piece in some cases um, to make sense of that. And to make it useful, and and so you, you're right. You have a lot, and we we cite a lot in the book. A lot of oh my CEOs gosh. The citations and, in this are just breathtaking. Yeah, it's just it's everywhere, and so it's I everywhere. think, <laughs> and I and so I think that's if if I had to pick a point where Lori and I were like, oh come on, we got to get this done. It's we kept sharing these stories. Oh, did you see this? Oh, did you see this? And it's like, uh-huh. why is this not getting through? Why is why are these people that normally everyone valorizes right? Um, why, why are they ignoring this when they say this? 
Um, and, and so that was, if I had to point to a, a spot, that probably is it uh, for the two of us. This is sort of a field from the book. And also, I want to mention this cool, um, this project Oxygen from Google that you say. Oh, but, before, yeah. but before we talk about that, do you, um, this, this may be an unfair question, but why do you think, because I have a theory, people keep peddling the you can't do anything with a humanities degree? If the, if uh, the data, if the facts don't back that up, like why keep the cliche if it's not quote unquote true? So that's a great question. And I want to hear your theory. I ha- I think, I wonder if, if it's sort of a chicken and egg question, because um, one of the things that, um, one of the theories I would say, and, and I have to be honest and say, and I can't speak for my co-author, but for myself, I, I buy into this theory that this STEM crisis was constructed by industry by industry that wanted um, to lower wages. Uh, and that's yes. the way you do it, right? You oversupply. And export, and export jobs overseas. Exactly. Because we don't have the skilled labor. Yeah, Exactly. Absolutely. So I, I don't know if, it, I can't remember if it made it into the book, honestly, but the Disney example of them laying off in 2015, 250 engineers, engineers, um, IT people, um, to to bring in 250 folks from, uh, other countries trained them and then fired them, right? Trained the new people and then they they lost their jobs. Um, and so I am very persuaded by the argument that this STEM crisis stuff, because Title Bomb will still tell you it's not, it, there is no data in the academic research. It's all public stuff um, that there is this sort of rhetorical ecology around the STEM crisis. And, um, and born from that is this, well, if this is great, then everything else must not be. And if we need this and we don't need anything else, it's this really, you know, um, just super binary thinking. Um, and so I don't, I don't know why that question, uh, I guess, initially emerged in the world. But I think that this, the rhetoric of industry has really, really made it um, it's, 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 it's made it, uh, come back up again. Yeah. And when, and by the way, for the listeners, cause rhetoric is sort of, um, we do not have a, a, a new books channel in rhetoric. We just have a new books channel in language. Um, hmm. but when we say rhetorical ecology, we just mean sort of a giant cluster. No, no, no. It's okay. A giant cluster of different arguments, right. um, that all work together to sort of create a common belief system, even though those arguments, um, may or may not be true in the, right. in the sense of like may or may not be supported by data. Right. And the other one I'll add that I think is common is I, I just think that people are relatively mimetic, meaning mm-hmm. I think they mimic. So I think, mm-hmm. I think you can tell mm-hmm. people all day long that the humanities are valuable. And I think you can even showcase examples. Like for example, I'm a humanist and I'm incredibly successful and I make plenty of money and I'm much happier than not, not a ton, but totally enough. And I'm much happier than everybody else that I know in my family who became lawyers or engineers or doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and those who, you know, many of them did not go to college. My brother's, my brother did not finish college, mm-hmm. but, uh, but they see like Steve jobs and they see Mark Cuban and these people are just so good at being everywhere that I think, I think their brain, like the cliche just lets them believe that if I see success, that there's a path, that there's a very easy path to it. Right. And that is going to business school if I want to make a business that makes a lot of money. And so right. the brain is just very comfortable with just re- reinforcing that groove because it creates a certain predictive outcome as opposed to the humanities, which is telling parents like, I don't know what the life is going to look like after four years, but I can tell you that 
happiness and understanding and empathy and leadership and digital critical citizenship skills are all going to be part of what what we want that four years to look like, but I just can't predict an outcome on the other end. I think that's why people don't buy into the narrative. Right. And I, and I, I I absolutely agree with that. And I also think that, you know, look, there's a legitimate concern about how my kids are going to pay their bills. Right. I mean, college, I mean, I I started school in, in 1986. Um, it, you know, I can remember my parents writing a check for $1,300 for a semester at the university of North Texas. Um, that's not where we are right now. And so I absolutely Mm -hmm. get where that fear, it's a legitimate fear, right? That's, it's very expensive to go to school. And, um, we, you know, we, we put that on the backs of students and so then what? And so I get where that, um, that impetus to sort of go for what everybody's telling me is, is the good stuff. And, um, and that's where we have to intervene and say, we get it. You know, we understand here are the numbers. You can live a fine life, you know, with, you know, and the average income of a humanities major. Um, and if you, you know, if you do well and you add some skill sets, like you also learn to code, you'll shoot up even higher, you know, um, because a lot of places that need humanities folks, you're, you're working with coders. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I got, so I do want to say that, that like, I, I get very frustrated with the, you know, I want this because I think I'm going to walk out of school and make 70,000 a year. Um, I, that's frustrating, but I also get where, you know, that legitimate fear, especially from, from families, yeah. um, can come from. It's yeah, expensive um, and they need yep. to know that it's a good and that they, it is a good investment in their kid. Um, uh, but also it's a good investment in life, you know? And, um, like you see, you've said a few times, you just don't want to spend those years doing something you don't enjoy. Yeah, no, I, yeah. And I, and I, I'm very sympathetic to that as well. Mm-hmm. I'm lucky to work at a state school where the yearly, where for four years of tuition at the school where I work, you would pay less than the one year that I did of private undergrad. Right. Um, so I, it's nice to have that. So I, I especially like feel a lot of sympathy for parents that are thinking about investing in education that's more like thirty-five to sixty thousand a year, mm-hmm. and the kinds of stakes that that raises in terms of sure. what you major in. Right. Uh, the other thing too is you make an argument in the book, and then we really got to get to this Google thing about um, about like you don't say the the loudest voice gets heard or whatever, and and I think you know especially compared to the kind of funding and alumni donations that business schools and law schools and things have to market their major as the best major. Sometimes like, you know, our Weasley little humanities departments that don't have those kinds of endowments, right. we don't get the message across the same way. So some of it is just surely some people are getting out into the public as, as sending the message. And that implicitly implies that they're more valuable. And that make, that just makes sense from a consumer perspective. Right. Yeah. No, we, I mean, I I have to be honest and say we do battle with that at our college in terms of, um, uh, advertising and I, and it's, it's frustrating because it's, well, we're giving the people right what they want to, what they want to see, what they think, you know, what everybody thinks their students need to do. We're going to prop that stuff up, but then you just keep that cycle going. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and I said in a, a meeting this year, uh, we lost our theater major and I, and oh, I said, no, that's yeah. terrible. And I, and I said, you know, I, I just, I, it, this has been engineered to death. And, and I said, and I don't mean that to be a cute pun. I, it's absolutely 
literal, you know, um, because we put so much, you know, time and money and effort into support of certain programs, others have to fall by the wayside. We just don't have enough money for everybody to be treated that way. And, and yeah, when you don't support a program, guess what happens? It doesn't survive, you know? Um, so, but it's also, yeah, but that gets back. I mean, it's so interesting too, because uh, like, for example, like just as a case study on our school, we've gotten rid of almost all of the studio arts. And I think we're only left now with like musical theater and theater. Hmm. And what's interesting is whenever we talk about what builds community on that campus, yes, it's the hockey team. Yeah. And I keep thinking if only the theater people had critical rhetorical training to mm-hmm. be as persuasive in their in their selling of community as the person who got a communication degree who now does marketing and promotion for the hockey team. Right. Yeah. They would have a fighting chance, but because they don't, they they start to get insular and they start right. to fall by the wayside and they don't understand that even though no one's coming after them directly they are under threat because they're not being featured as as a community builder the way that I would like them to be featured. And so you see people's lack of critical thinking and critical speaking and verbal engagement and argumentation and persuasion and stuff hurting them time and time again mm-hmm. when it's not the hockey players' skills as hockey players right. doing the persuasion. It's the critical humanist thinking right. that gets yeah. people to buy in, right? And, and I think you're absolutely right. When I started the major, we started um, sort of a student group. We started calling us ourselves Communication Nation. And we branded smart, it. Smart. We yeah. branded it. We had it on T-shirts and sweatshirts and and everything. And we were we I, and and we are Penn State Berks, right? We're not U Park. We don't have the football team. That's you know we we always have that sort of stepchild status. And our students, you know, they 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 get that. They sense it. Um, but but a lot of them don't want to go to a huge university. And so my philosophy is a rhetorician. When I started that program, was we need to give them a family. We need to give them a community. We we need them to yeah. want to stay here, and and it worked. I mean, they came up with their own language. They have castastic days because it's communication arts and sciences, and they pro, they don't procrastinate. They procrastinate, and I mean, they they created a language. They and they wore their stuff, and I had to fight for every single bit of that to use my budget in that way. And now every program does it. Everyone well, and yeah, uh, and and. You know, it works. Well, That's why. And think about, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. Just, no, it's you're fine. Me so, you're getting me so excited. So, mm-hmm. and also think about when we think about like digital marketing, who do you mm-hmm. think is going to come out ahead and not even ahead, but like they're going to come out on par, whether you go to business school and learn about hashtag and search engine optimization, which right. I know uh, too much about, <laughs> or people who are learning how to play with language in creative and community building ways. And they are just generating this kind of, I mean, I read, I read an article about hashtag and search engine optimization that said in today's social media landscape, one of the, the most challenging things to do is create a niche hashtag, meaning you go from a hashtag that no one follows to something that is trending is probably one of the hardest things for an individual or a small organ. Like obviously like COVID-19 wasn't trending a year ago. That's not what they're talking about. Right. But for example, we have a hashtag um, that Jen Mercia created, who's another rhetorician, uh, hashtag team rhetoric. Right. And that is now what everyone uses when they hashtag mm-hmm. rhetoric stuff. So is it like, is it trending the way that um, like uh, COVID is trending? No. no, but it is considered successful for a niche hashtag. And people who are doing that stuff are more often critical humanists and people mm-hmm. who are into language play than they are people who went and did four years of social media marketing. 
Right. It's that humanity piece, yeah. right? right? It's the right. understanding of humanity. So, so you're sort of a lesson in that in that success point. Um, it did. So, it did work. Yeah. That's great. And I want to, so on that point, I want to talk a little bit about this Google, this Project Oxygen mm-hmm. from Google, just because I yeah. think in terms of in terms of an evidence-based argument for what you're talking about, this is a one that will re- really resonate with non-familiar readers. Right. So do you want to explain that or do you want me to just read it from the book? Um, go right ahead. Okay. So essentially you're talking about the core skills and knowledge most desired by current employers. And mm-hmm. you talk about Google and you say, when right. you think about Google, you think about computer scientists, engineers, mathematicians. It's all about tech, right. except that it isn't. According to the results of a study, the company launched in 2009 called Project Oxygen. This study is the most thorough data-intensive study that any company has undertaken to date to understand the qualities that lead to promotion and a successful career. That, that's you quoting a source. Mm-hmm. And here are the top seven. Be a good coach. Empower others. Don't micromanage. Well, I lose on the micromanaging part. <laughs> be, in, be interested in the well-being of your team. Be bold and result-oriented. Be a good communicator. Help your employees with their own career development. Have a clear vision and strategy. Then you say... STEM knowledge skills came in dead last. Yep. That was a quote too. That's also a quote. Yep. (laughs) From uh, reporter Valerie Strauss, the traits Mm -hmm. more commonly associated with an English or theater major than a computer science graduate are the kinds of skills that we see. And this is also borne out by the data that the American Association of Colleges and Universities releases every year. Right. They do a pretty intensive employer survey to see where our graduates are meeting or not meeting their needs. And repeatedly at the top of that list is oral written communication and increasingly like digital, uh, not digital, um, increasingly um, global, multicultural, whatever you want to call that. They use different words every year. And those are the things that the humanities teach. Whereas the technical skills are very low on the list. Right. And, and what we found in our research is that, you know, those technical skills, if you want them, they're, they're not hard to get. I mean, it's not to say that that's easy work, right? Um, you, you know, the people that we researched and talked and, and who talked about adding those skills to their humanities backgrounds, you know, they, they, they were like, I went to boot camps and I worked, you know, 24 hours a day for five weeks and, uh, and until they got it. And they, and they admitted they still weren't as good as the people that maybe had gotten degrees in it, but um, that that's what made them that sort of purple unicorn. Um, yeah. Well, and two sets of data about that. One of the things that they're finding, there's a guy, uh, a Cal Newport. He's like a, he's like a, he's a popular writer, but he, he does admissions. He's, he's like big thing is college admissions. And mm-hmm. he's made the argument that I think is pretty compelling that if you look at the number of people who graduate in those specialized fields, like say someone who's really good at audiovisual production, Mm-hmm. You also have to account for how many people were doing that stuff prior to college, because right. you'll find that a lot of people who graduate didn't come in with a blank slate. They specifically chose that major because that is what they were already doing. They were already making YouTube videos, making amateur films. And so the idea that Good you're going to go to business school and turn out like them is, is a myth, right? That's yeah. And then also in, in addition to that, um, I don't remember what I was going to say, so I'm going to kick it back to you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I mean, I think, I, I, I think one of the things that, I mean, you, you sort of hinted at it too, uh, this idea of, um, what kind of people are successful. And I think that, um, you know, Google had that, um, the project oxygen that you're talking about, but then they, um, they also had, uh, that project Aristotle that we talk about. 
And, um, you know, you had the A teams and the B teams and the A teams were people who had that, you know, really strong tech knowledge and the, the personalities who had to talk first and be right. And, you know, be the sort of alpha, you know, alpha folks. Uh, and then you had B teams, um, who were made up of people who didn't feel the need to, to be that sort of, you know, smartest person in the room and who, um, had more equality and generosity, had curiosity towards their teammates' perspectives, empathy, emotional intelligence, uh, and uh, teams that allowed team members to have emotional safety. And Google found that the most successful teams were the team Bs, not the team As, um, with all of these very specific skills, but the team Bs who had those some of those skills, but also have these other kinds of skill sets that um, are often called soft skills, which that's sort right. of a big thing for us in this book is no, it's yep. a core skill and knowledge, right? It's not yeah. soft, nothing soft about it. Um, and, and that, that gets left out of these equations, um, that are so binary and, um, you gotta, I, so we, you know, we, we say, look, uh, as you said before, if you want to be a business major, go be a, go be the best business major you can, but minor in communication. Uh, if you want to go to law school, minor in communication. If you want to, you know, go be an actuary, minor in writing. I mean, or English or, mm -hmm. you know, like you've got to, got to bone up those skills that make you team B. Yeah, um, or, or better yet, you know, well, not better yet, but another alternative too is it's so, okay. You want to go to a, a law, a law school or an MBA program or whatever, uh, ask, ask what kinds of stuff they're doing to, to cover all of these bases, right? Right. Like, do, do your, cause you know, if a business school wanted to, I don't think I would do it now, but like if a business school coming out of grad school had been like, Hey, we want to hire a critical rhetorical humanist to, mm -hmm. to be on our faculty. Mm -hmm. I, I might've taken that job. Right. right. Yeah. 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 That would have been so, a great, great opportunity. So that's another way that people can incentivize because there are, there are like, like Caltech and there are places doing that kind of, most of us are not going to these schools, but that is an say, option. Yeah. It's, it's like, we act as if we're just going to have to choose, but some of it too is people going into college are going to have to drive some of that change by, by looking for programs that are rewarding that kind of what you call like STEM plus critical or whatever that language is mm -hmm. like where there's extra letters at the end of the STEM. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So that's another well, thing that just practical, if you're, if you're college shopping and major shopping, ask what kind of, what kind of multifaceted education you're going to get and see if they're responding to all of these skill sets or, yeah, or at least so, many of them. Yeah. So I'd say two things. I'd say, first of all, like the whole, you know, adding the letters things, it's a perfect example. Of, so you have steam, right? With adds art you have, or, or, uh, and then you have, um, or yeah, yeah, you have, and, you have one called and, and STEM, have STEM, which is like mathematical yeah, and or med med medical, medical communication or something, knowledge, medical knowledge. Right. You have stream, which is adding reading. And all these new words are just telling you, you need some humanities in your degree, right? I mean, that's what they're telling you. You need arts and you need humanities. And the second thing I'd say um, is you're right, that there's very specific schools that have already chosen to start going in these directions. The Harvards. Um, and those sorts of places. Yeah. Like I said, like not the places most of us are going to go. Right. But I mean, that speaks to, that speaks yeah. to, Hey, if you want to get ahead of the game, right, go do what they're doing. MIT has uh, a requirement of, I think about 25% of all their degrees are humanities. It's something along those lines. I know we have in the book, I can't remember the stat exactly, but they understand it. China has started to push mm -hmm. 
liberal arts in their MBA programs. Like, hey, this Play-Doh guy, we need to read some, you know, mm-hmm. go, you're, get ahead of the curve, right? Because everybody else is still in this sort of STEM land. And um, no, the people that are, that are, they're the movers and shakers, they're, they're past that. Yeah. And I mean, I think, um, I think too, like thinking hard, and maybe this is where we want to get into talking about this different skill set, because you list in the book, just a bunch of these different skills and, and how necessary they are and the, the, what you call the core competencies or the core skills. And you have critical thinking, learning core skills and knowledge, critical thinking, written communication, verbal communication, collaboration, problem solving, creativity and innovation. It's like the worst rap song ever. Technological competence and technological literacy, ethics, diversity, inclusivity, and equality, globalization, global understanding, a global perspective, and leadership. And so when you're thinking about some of these concepts like problem solving and critical thinking, problem solving doesn't mean being given a problem that has a right answer and then being asked to solve it and then give the right right answer back, right? Right. So also looking for whether these these courses are doing the things they say they do they do like critical thinking like problem solving because mm-hmm. sometimes i think those get recast in a way that doesn't do what on the other side like people like us and also um what they what are the headhunters what's the word for those people the the people that look so if if i'm google and i want to hire a new seat the chief um uh creative officer i'm going to send mm-hmm. out one of these search firms search firms that's it to yeah. look for these people. And when they look for these people, they will ask them critical thinking questions. And you'll know pretty quickly whether the critical thinking that you were taught was critical thinking in your business program is the same as what people on the ground consider critical thinking. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and, I mean, I, I want to I add to your introduction of that, that th- these were not uh, categories that we just made up. These were, you know, doing an iterative analysis. So looking through all of these years of, um, the National Association of College, Colleges and Employers, uh, and then um, the, um, I think it's the uh, American Association of Colleges and Universities. Um, I get these acronyms messed up. Yeah, the American um, Association of Colleges College and Universities, universities right. does the they, employer survey. Right, right. And, and then there's another one where a heart research group uh, does some work. And so we took, you know, for the last 10 years, um, one of these reports is, is every other year. One of these reports is every year. And we just we just looked. And, and that's why some of those titles are so long, because as you said earlier, they don't always call the same things the same things, which drives me batty. Um, but, you know, this is this is what was most commonly noted from employers about what they want from students. And so these were the top. And, and so that's, you know, we talk, we, that's why we talk about those. Uh, and I think the problem solving example is a really good one, because I think one of the, that sort of, uh, my, my co-author always uh, laments the idea of the, that the lonely English major sitting under a tree, reading a book, you know, sort of idea of what the humanities are, uh, but science is doing stuff, you know, they're in labs, they're doing things. Right. Um, but humanities folks are doing all the time. It's just our lab is a lot bigger. Our lab yeah. is the world. And so um, we are thinkers and we are doers. Um, we study human experience. It's complex. It's demanding. Uh, and just like problems in the, you know, quote, real world, unquote, um, human nature is messy and it's unpredictable and it resists simple solutions and so that's what students in the humanities study. They engage in negotiations of um, interconnecting multiple, competing even perspectives. They address enduring 
seemingly impenetrable problems. Uh, and they do this, you know, thinking critically and thinking creatively. And you'd be hard pressed to find, uh, you know, a leader in business who doesn't want that kind of thinker uh, in their organization. Yeah. And so this idea that that humanity students aren't problem solvers because they're not solving problems in the lab or on the computer is just not true. They're solving yeah. the biggest ones, you know. And um, do you you actually have a whole section of the book that's that's really cool, but almost feels like it's better suited for the person reading it. But maybe we could highlight it that you actually show the humanities classrooms in action on all mm-hmm. of these different aspects. Yeah. Is there maybe mm-hmm. one example that you want to dig into? Because I just I, I think trying to cover all of them would be exhausting. Yeah, it is. Um, so uh, well, we can stick with problem solving. So we talk about. Um, you know, how students learn problem solving in, in a humanities class. And, and we can take an example of um, the policy speech my students do in just the basic 100 public speaking class that every student at Penn State has to take. Um, they have to do a policy speech and um, they have to uh, show their work, essentially, that they looked at, you know, um, multiple perspectives, that they made choices about um, problems and how to solve them, and that they did the research required to make a, a good decision on how to solve a problem, and that they are able, you know, they're able to um, do the research, they're able to synthesize all of that research, make decisions about what to include, what not to include, what's stronger, what's weaker, um, put all of that in, uh, in into arguments, and then effectively communicate those arguments to a public audience. Um, and, and they are dealing with real world problems, uh, and, you know, and, and, and sticky, messy problems, uh, of policy, uh, like marijuana and assisted suicide and, you know, the, the kinds of Mm -hmm. speeches we're used to hearing. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's, that's great practice for learning how to, um, solve problems. And I even think like the research, you know, people sort of poo poo the research paper. I know my students do and I get it. Um, I didn't understand it back then, but I always tell them, you know, I teach a rhetoric of horror film class. So mm-hmm. I, do I care about your perspective on Dracula? Yes, I do. But at a di- at a different level, you're doing this assignment not to, not to come to that conclusion to, to please me, but you're doing research, you're synthesizing, you're evaluating, you're editing, you're making decisions, and you're succinctly communicating a lot of information. And you are going to be hard pressed to find an organization that wouldn't love you if you can do that well. So, you know, problem solving happens a lot in in the humanities. Yeah. And um, one of the things that I'm repeatedly hearing as I send undergraduates off to, because most of my most of my students don't go into academia, they go into the you know, they go into the professional world, um, mm-hmm. is that they're a, a leg above everyone else because they understand the difference between a topic and an idea. Right. And they understand the difference between a cliche idea right. and a non-cliche idea. And right. most people don't get that. And I, I there's a really interesting uh, video, and it's only about five minutes long, called The Secrets to a Great TED Talk by Chris Anderson, who's the, yeah. the major TED curator. Yeah. You know, I have I have serious qualms with TED Talks, as all like rhetoricians do. Right. But I will say the first part of that video is about what makes for a good public piece of communication, and it's an mm-hmm. idea. Mm-hmm. And most people can't even get that far. So not only can the people who are doing the kinds of things that are being taught in these core skills think about the difference between Dracula and the idea about Dracula, 
but they can come up with the cliche ideas about Dracula and something relatively unique and innovative. And from mm-hmm. there, they can make films about Dracula. They mm-hmm. can produce research papers about Dracula. I mean, they can they can transfer that idea skill to looking at any other problem in a way mm-hmm. that they can't if all they do is memorize, you know, facts about Dracula. Yeah, right. And I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be reductive. I know that the STEM isn't like only memorizing facts, sure, right? Because there are, again, these are binary categories: STEM and humanities. Because right. there are STEM that are doing humanities stuff, and there are humanities Absolutely. that are integrating with STEM. Right. But if right. you're reducing them to binaries, which is what sort of like the public knowledge does, that's kind exactly. of where we're pushing. So I don't want to discount right. that there's people doing really good stuff Absolutely. in both fields. Yeah. And I and I have said this before. I, I want to make sure it's clear. I I work with a lot of people that do just that. And it's, yeah, and yeah. it's fantastic. But yeah, there is that pub, public binary that doesn't really jive with, you know, the way, way things are really happening. Yeah. But also yeah. sometimes... That's how they are happening. So I also oh, don't want to sure. discount that there are some just straight up programs that like really yeah. need to to get on board with with a more multidimensional way of thinking. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, I mean, some of my favorite best students uh, have uh, in my horror film class have been from the sciences. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and it's all about, well, first of all, I mean, I teach this as sort of a cultural context class, right? And how do these films speak to cultural context and all that? Right. Um, so they get to use their science brains, but also they always come to me and say, I don't ever get to write and think of this way. You know, I don't ever get to take what I know about science and expand and hypothesize in narrative forms. And, you know, they, they, it's, it's good for them. And it's great for my students to have them in class because then they can see, you know, um, they can see that we all, we all need each other. Uh, and we all are better if we know a little bit more about each other rather than having these silos. And that silo sort of gets us to, I think, one of the things uh, you, you might want to talk about uh, is, you know, how humanities can do better. At- yeah, um, we can. No. But also it's it's your book. So there's no. tons of stuff we haven't covered. So do you want to jump someplace else first, maybe thinking about staying with the book and then we can reflect briefly on the because because, again, the book isn't really a critique of how the humanities could do better. It's. It's more of a, yeah, college career and decisions and yeah, how know, those things I, articulate these problems. I would, yeah. yeah, I would like to I would like to say one other thing about one of the yeah, major arguments in the say. book. Um, I think one of the really important arguments in the book, um, and this speaks back to the, the idea that we all need each other, is that this high-tech, modern, global economy um, is going to need the humanities. It already does need the humanities. And... Um, the, the businesses that are doing the most innovative work are, uh, often the ones who have the artists and the humanities in the room with them. And we use a lot of Apple, right? We use quotes from Steve Jobs and from Tim Cook, because I mean, to me, if, if Jobs did nothing else in the world, one of the great things he did in the world is he made it very clear that Apple is Apple. It's a lifestyle because of the humanities and the arts, you know? There's a PC and there's Apple, and one is a lifestyle. Uh huh. And I think that similar with um, Harley Davidson, actually, very similar concept. Yeah. Right, right. And so, you know, Jobs was always very honest about how he needed all of those things to make Apple what it was. And so that's still with us. And um, I think one of the things I'd want people to know is. If you're, you know, we talk, we, 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 um, mentioned this, this guy that works for a company that builds apps. And he says, we have 10 meetings to get an app off the ground. Two of those meetings are about the technology. 
The other eight are about everything else. So all this tech, all of the science that's going to drive us into the future, you still have to have someone who connects people together to make it happen, uh, who connects the business to who needs their help, the who sells it, who writes the technical data, who manages um, information and markets and um, create social media campaigns. I mean, all of these great, I mean, we tend to focus on the thing as if the Apple computer just was Apple one day, but it wasn't. We all know, if you know the history of that, it was a, it was a long process. Um, but one thing he didn't really give up on ever, it seems, is this idea that he needs the arts and he needs the humanities. And that's, that's I think, what's made it a different kind of company and, and product. Um, and I think that's really important to, to understand is that even if you are talking about engineering firms or science firms, if you are a student who loves health, uh, who loves medicine, but med- medical school isn't for you, then get a public health degree. Yes. Get a mm-hmm. degree in health communication. If you are somebody who loves, who wants to be an entrepreneur, but doesn't want to do the business degree, okay, great. Get, you know, get a business minor and then build a ton of skills in the humanities that help make you um, that, you know, more, um, more popular, more successful business. And if you want to be an engineer, but yeah, you can't, you know, it's, you love engineering, you love building things, you love your Lincoln logs or whatever, but that (laughs) skill set isn't yours they still need tech writers and they need marketers yeah. and they need public communication people. So even these businesses that are all, you know, are all STEM, they still have all these humanities and arts and social sciences people behind them making that engine run. And so that's another one of those binary problems, you know, Oh, I can't go into medicine because I didn't yeah. get it. No, of course you can, you know, um, you, you, that's one thing science isn't good about, right. Is, is communicating to the public science. Um, and, and they need us to do that, uh, and to get their messages to the public, uh, persuasively. Yeah, there is, I won't get into the, but we have a subfield of rhetoric called the rhetoric of science. And essentially mm-hmm. the job of the rhetoric of science is to look at how scientific knowledge and scientific yeah. into innovation is always built on, for lack of a better word, metaphors. Sure. And one of the things that, um, we repeatedly see, and that I think the medical field is reluctant to admit, but will still admit to is that revolutions in science and technology always come from a different metaphor. Right. So, you know, you, you see that, um, uh, for the last X number of years, we've been thinking about a computer as a network, mm-hmm. but look at the limitations of that. And what are the other metaphors we could use? And then all of a sudden right. those metaphors spawn the next generation of technology. And that right. doesn't come from somebody who understands the tech it comes from someone who, yes, understands the tech, but also understands that that the way we think about the tech is underwritten right. by metaphor. Yeah. The way we talk about it matters. Yeah. Yeah. And that's Absolutely. no different from that's no different from a tech innovator to like a military strategist, right? It's mm-hmm. all driven by and, and there's a really good uh, interview that just came out um on the media, the podcast, mm-hmm. about how war metaphors are driving coronavirus responses. And oh, wow. this, and this book on immunology about the way that we talk about the virus in ways that serve certain purposes, but it doesn't actually um, reflect other metaphors we could use for thinking about the virus that would yield different and maybe better results. And it's just, 
so cool when you think about the fact that all of these high up public health officials are all just trafficking in metaphors at the end of the day. <laughs> they don't know but, they don't know yeah. jack shit right. about this virus other than what the metaphor teaches them. And yes, right. I mean, and even people building vaccines, right? They're building right. they're building on ancient knowledges. They're not build yes, they have to know how to use all of the new medical tech, but fundamentally the humanities is at work in every corner of that endeavor. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the metaphors is how they help the, un- the, the public understand, right. you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's all there. And uh, so, yeah. Mm. Oh, that's the op-ed you ought to write. How the humanities is, is fixing coronavirus. Ooh, good idea. That's the op-ed. Yeah. Sorry. That's off topic. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, so, right. so in terms of who you think who do you think is going to benefit? Everybody will benefit from this book, but you know, whenever you say everybody, then it's nobody. So can you think about specific groups of people who would benefit from this book or parts of the book and um, how you imagine them using it? Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, when we wrote the book, we, we wrote it, I mean, it's definitely packed with lots of research, but we tried to write it for a general audience and an academic audience. And so, yes, it's very um, accessible. Mm-hmm. Good, good. Without being productive. Uh, yeah. Good, good. So we wanted to speak to a, a number of different audiences. We wanted to speak to academics, not just um, the folks in our disciplines, although I think the folks in our disciplines can use help uh, in learning how to better promote our, our discipline. Um, and, uh, and, but also administrators who are buying into this STEM rhetoric stuff over and over and over again. Um, and there are multiple theories about why that is. Um, academic advisors. I mean, my husband's an academic advisor, so he, he gets it. He hears it all the time. He knows how to talk about this oh, stuff. That's, that's interesting that you had. Oh, that's a cool, um, a cool insight to have while you're working on something like this. Yeah, yeah. So, but, but, but he knows how to talk about this stuff. But I think, I think, I think about how long it took me to know how to talk about and explain rhetoric to my family. How can I expect an academic advisor who doesn't have a rhetoric degree or a career services person, how can I expect them to understand and to be able to effectively and succinctly communicate that? Uh, so it was, it was an attempt to get to all of those audiences, right? So here's some language you can use to talk about this stuff. Uh, and then um, the, the other big arg- audiences were, were families and, and, you know, perspective and even current students. Um, here's why you need to think differently about your options. Here's why those differences, uh, matter to your life. And here's why they're going to matter to your career. Uh, and why, and why this stuff is only going to get more important as time goes on. Um, because, um, you know, the thing that's going to differentiate, those, you know, one business from another is, especially in something in a global economy is who can communicate, you know, with global audiences and amongst global, you know, global corporations and who can do that best is, is going to do better in, in those environments. And so we wanted to give them uh, a fairer picture, I guess I would say of the humanities. And uh, we say a couple of times in the book, look, if the humanities isn't for you, if STEM is for you, that's absolutely what you should do. But if it's not, don't believe the hype, <laughs> you know, speaking of rap, um, don't believe the hype because it's just not true. And um, we need we need parents, uh, families and, and, and students to understand that they're not doing themselves any favors when they um, aren't um, fully... Um, 
I'm doing a lot of ums here, fully educated about different majors and what they can offer. Yeah. And that's all we want is for people to have fair, a fair idea of what mm-hmm. the humanities can offer. And then if you choose another direction, great. You've got to go where you want to go, but make smart choices based on real evidence and real data, not what I think is the rhetoric of industry who wants to flatten wages or lower them. Well, and I also find it very interesting how often people will just continue to believe cliches despite Mm -hmm. obviously not really believing them. Yeah. So I think another thing that we have to be better about is just looking at someone when they say stuff like, well, you know, you can't get a job with a humanities degree and just going, is that true? Yeah. Tell me about it. And then letting them tell me all the ways that what they just said isn't true. And this is something I try to do with my students. I mean, every time a cliche comes out of their mouth, it's like, do you believe that? Oh, well, I guess not. Okay. Well, number one, why did you say it? And number two, what could we say otherwise? And I and I think that the humanities have become so so nervous mm-hmm. about our relevance that we're often unwilling to just push back when people say like we 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 try to oh well no I mean salary you know they can get mm-hmm. a job which is true mm-hmm. but the bigger fight is really um, like let me show you right now how what I do is going to get inside your brain and right. help you understand what you're doing and how it's mm-hmm. problematic. Right. And I think, I think humanities faculty can do a good job of doing that. Right. I mean, cause one of the yes. things we all, we are always trying to be careful about is we're not trying to pick a fight. Right. And, right. I'm, Absolutely. and I'm not, I'm not trying to say I'm more important. I'm not, I'm just trying to say we need a, we need, we need families and we need university stakeholders to have a fair assessment of what's really needed, desired, going to be needed in the future. Um, but sometimes uh, you know, we, we talk about this when we talk about, you know, um, sort of um, multicultural discussions. Um, people mm-hmm. who are constantly uh, privileged feel very oppressed suddenly when you start to ask for equality, right? Right. Um, <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, it's reverse this. and re- No, no, that's not. That, that, so we have to be careful about how we talk about it. We should be careful. Um because we want to, we want to build these bridges. We don't want to, we don't want to burn them down. But, but it, it, but that's something that humanities faculty can be really good at if we're careful. Uh, and uh, I do. I, again, I'm so lucky to have folks in in STEM in my college that I can have these conversations with. But not everybody can. And so I do think you yeah. have to think. You have to think very carefully about how you're going to frame this and how you're going to talk about it. But I just can't see anybody. Uh, being terribly upset uh, in in the ways that we're asking people to talk about it, you know, pick yeah. what you and want, but here's here's all the information you're not getting about what we do. Yes, and for the listeners at home, don't let my over the top righteous indignation <laughs> co- co- color Michelle's very reasonable and kind and engaging I, and fair minded book. <laughs> I have to, I, I have to, I have to give my co author credit for moving more in that direction because I had I written it by myself, it probably would have sounded a little bit more like what you're expressing. But well, um, I think but it's she's a right. matter of she's right. Well, though. Yeah, She's it's right. also a matter of where you're currently seeped. And I am yes. unfortunately not on a campus where I think in practice that I, mm-hmm. I think it's I think the idea we all talk about is that we're all in it together, but it, it doesn't feel that way. And I, right. I also have to remind myself that my experience is not everyone else's experience. And I also right. don't do anybody any favors by being cranky about this. Well, and and for me, I have to I have to divorce the people that I work with with the people I work for. Uh, and I think that those oh, are interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, those are those are we can't conflate those two things. Uh, and if I can work with people 
then the people that I work for might start to change their tune. We have an engineer who's doing an amazing um, interdomain uh, class with an artist and she does uh, motion and wave physics. And, and this artist is a, teaches photography. And so they have this whole class about oh, cool. photographing motion and waves and it's beautiful. It's, and the stuff that the students come with is just gorgeous. And so, you know, that's who I need to be talking to. And then if, if we do enough of that talking, then maybe that, that'll move its way up. I don't know. I mean, you know, yes, I am, I am a, I am a broken record about team teaching. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't see, because I think universities and, and people, you know, sending like, again, I'm a, like, as I'm sure you are, I'm a big, big, a, a huge suspect of anyone saying like consumers have to drive the change. Right. So I'm not saying that, but I am saying we need to see multiple places where there's more incentivization and rewards for mm-hmm. speaking across boundaries yeah. and I, I, disciplinary I have, boundaries. I have to give Penn State credit for creating this interdomain requirement. Yes. Very um, cool. Where- yeah, they have. You have to take two classes before you graduate. That is inter, that are interdomain, and so it's nice. It's it's sometimes it's like I teach a GH and GS, but still they're getting you know they're getting multiple perspectives on the same topic. And I think will that's you, will the, you tell people what GH and GS is? I'm so sorry. Uh, Don't humanities, be sorry. Humanities and social sciences. So and the G stands for general. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So general humanities, general social science, uh, and so that other class that I was talking about is is an an arts class, a general education arts class, and a general education engineering class. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's good stuff. It, it, it does. It was, it was moving the right direction. And, and who else do you, what other kinds of um, like major decisions does this book speak to for different parts of the listeners? I think too, um, the, the very end of it does speak specifically to students and whether you're reading this right before you start school or towards the end of school, um, talking about how you can start to market yourself um, as a humanities major specifically. But I think you can also take these tools and these ideas and you can um, fold them into whatever your major. I think they're just some good ideas about how to market yourself. I actually created a class uh, for our majors that's an elective that's all about using what they learned in their interpersonal and organizational and rhetorical studies classes and marketing themselves as communication majors, because they, it, it, how else are they going to know? How, how else? I mean, we just expect they're going to be able to do that. Uh, and so we, I teach a class in it. Um, and, um, you know, they come out being able way sooner than I could to tell people what it is they do and why it's important. Yeah, and kudos to my chair as well, uh, Dr. Andrew Herman, who may or may not listen to this interview. But uh, he also, um, on top of being chair and a bunch of other duties, he teaches a uh, applying communication theory to the job search process. That, oh, that's a great, yeah. Yeah, that the students find incredibly rewarding. And right, and it does teach them the right, – because the last thing we want to do is spend four years telling them how being a communication major is going to do X, Y, Z, and then forget to actually teach them how to communicate about right. being a communication right. major. Right, yeah. right. And they and, don't know – I mean, and, they, and why should they know – how how they have to do that in the work world? They haven't been there, right? Uh, we right. have, and so I'll have to get a copy of his syllabus because that sounds like it. I could I could definitely steal some stuff. Yes, this uh, is a big pro- passion project of his, and I really mine too. appreciate that there's someone to do that for me because I do not yeah. want to do it. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, else is doing it. Yeah, no, I find it. But so anyway, yeah, the last part of the book does help students figure out how to, from the very beginning, 
market yourselves and and not just in terms of your classes, but I think one of the things we forget about is all of these core skills and knowledge. And again, we don't call them soft skills, core skills and knowledge people. Um, all of these core skills and knowledge you get in your internships and your extracurriculars and being being the um, president of the PR club and your volunteer work and all of this, how do you get all of these core skills and knowledge examples of that, you know, to, to, to put forth to employers because, um, you know, somebody who's, who's in engineering can show a program they've created, you know, in computer engineering, what can you show? Uh, and, and the thing is, there's a ton for you to show, but somebody has got to remind you, and ask you to put that stuff in in a, a nice little graph and figure out how you can use examples from your real life to show how you've put those principles you've learned into action. Yeah, and I really like the final part of the book. And I, I um, it's it's obviously this is a long book. All things, I mean, it's not too long, but it's two hundred sixty four pages. So if I were going to assign, which I'm going to my students, I would assign them um, some of the excerpts from the beginning about the value. And then I'd also then, because obviously they're already in the classroom. So that middle right. part is really more for people that right. don't understand what we do. Exactly. But that last part, I really like because there's also something about needing to embolden students in the humanities to yes. speak about the humanities without yes. apologizing for them. Yes. And, and, and it yeah. does a nice job of, of talking to them and, and striking that tone so that they can emulate it because- it's just such a challenge to even get them to just be willing to claim that space without just being like, oh, well, I know it seems like it's stupid, but actually it's kind of cool. Like, no, you yes. can dump all the apologies. You're right. just as entitled to be proud of your portfolio. And in fact, I just had a student who was number one talking point in an interview with an investment firm, I think it was, was a critical visual rhetoric essay he wrote on an old comic book about Black Panther fighting the Ku Klux Klan. Oh wow! That he had that he had put a page excerpt in his portfolio that he creates in this class, and he said that the hour interview, thirty minutes of it was this discussion, and right. he landed the job. And I told him, when you get comfortable there, I'd be really interested to know if you could get someone who interviewed you to tell you how that piece played a role, so I can feed that material back to someone else. Right, right. Was but you it have somebody? To fig- yeah, yeah. You have to figure a half an hour has to have some kind of significant impact about this piece, but that's a humanities project. Right. And, and yeah. could it have been that they realized, you know, it was a way to get to, 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 it could have been a way for them to see how that person thinks and critically assesses and, you know, who knows, but yeah, I mean, that stuff is, it's so useful. And I think the, the, the best part of that particular um, class for me is they walk in sort of as a lot of humanities students do with their heads kind of down and with lots of caveats about their degrees and they walk out with the, their heads just as high as the the students walking out of the next building with their engineering degrees. Um, and I actually think, I mean, when that communication nation stuff started and our students were proud of who they were and they had this, you know, this core group, I mean, bristled a little, it, you know, people were a little bristled, like, yeah, you know, Hey, what is, well, who do you think, you know, uh, good for them. Good for them for being proud of what they uh-huh. do. Agreed. And, uh, and so this class was, you know, it's, it helps. It, it definitely helps them come out with their heads held high and being able to talk um, really with a lot of passion uh, uh, and smarts about what they're going to do. Well, and also I think that's another good point about in terms of who the book is meant for, which is it might seem like if you already have a student who's in the humanities or you have someone or you're already a, a firm believer in the humanities that you don't need this book. But mm-hmm. in terms of 
language and data to talk about the value. Right. But also yeah. this ending piece for anyone who isn't lucky enough to be at a school where they offer you sort of a job transition, calm, whatever humanities articulate mm-hmm. experience. This final piece, this section, this part four that has several chapters is a great supplement for anyone at any stage trying to reinvest themselves in the value of the humanities and being able to communicate that to people. Thank you. Thank you. That was what we were going for. So yay. <laughs> well, yeah, it's nice because the book almost follows like a like the whole lifespan of someone invested in the humanities, right? The, the beginning piece where you're not sure, the part where maybe you're buying into it, the part where you want to see how to talk about it, the part mm-hmm. where you want to know what could what you might be doing, what other people are doing, then on the job market, then when you're hiring on the job market, also when right. you're thinking about you know side projects or community investment, because some of this too, we didn't even talk about, but it's not just about the job. It's about uh, nonprofit and the way people are volunteering right. and, and how they raise children. And I mean, humanity just resonates across all kinds of life experiences, right. not just where you work. Right. And that, and that is one part that we both wanted to really make sure we were clear about too, right? Is that we're not trying to distill major in the humanities to just its economic value. Um, but that it's also about what the humanities has done for humankind throughout the, the, the world's history uh, and what it's, what it's done for democracy, uh, in, for example. And that, and that stuff is super important. Right. And, uh, and we, 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 have to, we have to remember that and uh, value it. And I look around now and everything that's happening and I think, you know, um, all of these people that, you know, are, are sort of on the front lines and do, you know, doing, uh, important work, like you don't, it can be invisible work sometimes, uh, until, until you have to have it. And then, yeah. And I don't want to get on a soapbox, but if you see the people making the good and the maybe questionable decisions about this pandemic, mm. um, there's a clear divide between t- people that have critical thinking backgrounds and people who are. Right. I hate to call them them business people, but well, and I'll tell you. I mean, in case you (laughs) hadn't learned, uh, Fauci is a classics major from a liberal arts school. Yeah. So I mean, you know, you also don't have to major in biology to go to med school and do okay for yourself, right? Um, You, you know, the humanities have uh, this enduring value that we talk about in the book. Well, and our biggest demand right now for public speaking classes, which we cannot fill because we have more majors than we have uh, seats available, is for vet school, med school, um, and places where they want you to have that communication piece because they know that's what is going to set you apart once you learn the technical skills, right? They are smart. That is smart, smart, smart. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Engineers, I mean, they have to work in groups all the time. And so that there's not a small group communication component to their major. I mean- that's, that's, that's a tragedy. So get a communication minor, you know, and, and get some of those skill sets that are going to help you succeed and lead those small groups that you're going to be working in as an engineer. It's super important. I have a student in a class right now who has given me shit about metaphors and how this stuff is useful. And I was like, okay, well, what do you want to do? And he was like, well, I want to, I'm, I'm, my family owns a contracting firm and I'm just going to do that when I get out. So I Googled metaphors contracting. The first thing I found was like an issue from last year from the American Association for Contractors magazine. Oh my! Or I don't know the exact name of it because I because I, I don't have it in front of me. But it's a huge publication. Wow! And it was a front lead article about how your metaphors about um, the the industry are going to drive your choices and the problems and and benefits from that. Wow! 
And I sent it to him and I was just like, I, if this, if this doesn't work, I have no, I literally have no, nothing else I can come up yeah. with that would be better than this. Um, wow. Yeah. So That's even fantastic. people that are in the industry are thinking this way when they, yeah, when they, right, when they reflect, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, is there anything else you want to say? We're a little over an hour, but it's yep. more than worth it because we oh, have just thanks. glazed the surface of this incredibly dynamic book. But if there's oh, anything else you, you want to say, uh, now is a great time and then we'll wrap up. Um, no, I mean, I would just say, you know, that it's a, it's a book for a bunch of different audiences. It's written in a way that we think everyone can understand and read. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, there, and there are, I mean, I can point to, to other places to get this information. We, um, you know, there's, we aren't the only ones who have written, uh, this kind of stuff. And, um, we, we cite a lot of that stuff in the book. One of my favorites is, um, the fuzzy and the techie. Um, by Scott Hartley. I think it's got a longer title. Uh, Fuzzy and the Techie, Why Liberal Arts Will Rule the Digital World um, by Scott Hartley. Uh, and, and other books written by folks who are actually in the trenches um, that you know, I would also encourage people to, to pick up and read from folks who aren't academics, but who are saying you know, similar things to, to what we say. Yeah, and and anybody can sign up um, for the American. So again, it's the American Association of Colleges and Universities, the AACU. But mm-hmm. anybody can just sign up to receive that employer survey that they do every yes. year. Yes, yes, they absolutely can. And yeah. you can also sign up for their you know weekly listserv stuff, which has really great articles. And and the thing mm-hmm. is, it's not just about humanities. Um, it's uh, you know it's it's liberal arts, and so yeah. STEM. You know, a number of STEM disciplines were originally in the liberal arts, and um, that they talk about how all these things help each other and work with each other. And so it's another great source of information for building a better, you know, graduate, I guess, for lack of a better way of saying it. Right. Yeah. And just as a reminder, as I remind everyone that the title of the book we've been discussing is Major Decisions, College, Career, and the Case for the Humanities, authored by Michelle Ramsey, who joined us today on the podcast, and Lori Grobman, uh, 2020 from the University of Pennsylvania Press. And the book is called Major Decisions with an S because you're always making decisions about how the humanities will fit into a career trajectory, a lifestyle, a public conversation. So don't think that just because you maybe don't know anyone who hasn't already picked a major or that you don't know anyone going into college that this book doesn't have value because it still does. And if you're not interested in a personal copy, which many people are not, cannot recommend highly enough that you contact your university library or your public library and ask them to pick up a copy. They usually have some kind of request form or better yet, buy the book preferably the hard copy for libraries and make a donation. And then they can put this on the shelf so that maybe in five or 10 or 20 years, I mean, this book is going to be relevant for a long time. Other people that are in different phases of their life that maybe could use this book at that time will have access to the knowledge. It's also a great way to support university presses like University of Pennsylvania Press, because without them, not only could work like Michelle's not be done, at least to the quality that it's being done. Also, they help sponsor the New Books Network. So we are indebted to them. Um, so I will just go ahead and just put that spiel out. And if you want to say anything else, Michelle, if not, we will sign off. No, I just want to tell you, thank you so, so much for, for all the work that you do, not just this, but all the other, all the other stuff you do, uh, in podcast land and, um, (laughs) and for, and for taking the time to read and and talk about this book. I think it's so important to our students and that's really why we wrote it was for our students and, um, and for future and students who don't know yet. And they're besieged, and they're besieged uh, parents and um, yeah. families and yeah. everyone yeah. else. Yeah, that again, have legitimate concerns yeah. 
this yeah. book will help them with some of those answers. So yeah. And thank is there, you. Um, in terms of people getting in contact with you, if they have questions or want to continue the sure. conversation, is there a way they can reach out? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we're on social media, um, um, major decisions, one on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Um, but also you can always reach out to me personally. Um, you can look me up online, Michelle Ramsey at Penn State Berks and get a hold of my email and um, we can we can talk and uh, visit and share ideas. I would love that. Spell Burks for me. B e r k s. Okay, like short for Birkenstocks. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's the county. All right, just checking. I, I, you kept saying Burks, and I was like, oh man, I better write that down. Ah, yeah. All right, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. This is cool. Thank you. Um, send my appreciation to your co-author. Yes, I will. And hopefully, I will see you in person sometime. All right, that'd be that'd be All lovely. Right. All right, take care, and thanks everyone for listening.